Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Like you, I appreciate that powerful anthem uh, by our sanctuary choir. We stand forgiven at the cross because that really is the center of the gospel as we work our way through the gospel of Mark, and it actually applies very well to what we are going to look at today. Well, back in the 1980s, actor Harrison Ford uh, starred in a series of three movies featuring a character named Indiana Jones. How many of you saw at least one of those movies? Okay, good. At least, you're, at least you'll, this will make a little bit of sense then. Um, well, Indiana Jones was a swashbuckling archaeologist in search of the lost treasures of the ancient world. And in the final movie of that trilogy, called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Indiana's father, who by the way was played by Sean Connery, are searching for the Holy Grail. Now that's uh, the cup believed to have been used by Jesus himself at the Last Supper, and he's searching for it because of its historical and religious significance. But there's a villain in the story, as always, and he's also searching for the grail. And he wants it not, uh, not because of its historical significance, but because he believes that whoever has that cup and can drink from it will receive eternal life. But when they finally get to the place where the Holy Grail is hidden, it's being guarded by a 500-year-old medieval knight, and there's not just one cup, but there's many cups to choose from. And the knight explains that if they choose correctly, they get eternal life. But if they choose incorrectly, if they choose the wrong cup, uh, they get instant death. The villain has the upper hand in the, store, in, the, in the search, so he gets there first, and he chooses first. And he chooses a cup that he thinks the king of kings would drink from. It's a cup encrusted with gold and jewels. And he drinks from it and proceeds to age about 50 years in five seconds. His body decomposes in spectacular fashion and explodes into dust. If you've seen the movie, I was going to show you the scene, but it's a little bit gruesome. And the ancient knight simply says, he chose poorly. I love that line. He chose poorly. Well, Indiana chooses a simple clay cup, which turns out to be the true cup, and water from the cup heals his father from a gunshot wound. But then there's an earthquake, and the cup falls into a deep crevice and is lost forever. Now, it's just a movie. It's all make-believe. Uh, but it leads into our topic today. We continue in our study of the gospel according to Mark. Uh, we're calling this Following the King. And over the last two weeks, we've seen how Jesus said, whoever would follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Meaning that we receive a new identity when we follow Christ, an identity that's defined by the cross itself, which is what our choir was singing about moments ago. And then last week, Pastor Joe took us through the transfiguration. And this week, Jesus takes on the question of eternal life. We're in Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll put these verses up on the screens. You can follow along in your Mark uh, journal or just listen as I read. Mark chapter 10, beginning of verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, this Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. 
And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I'm going to begin today with a kingdom question. This whole story begins with a kingdom question. My wife and I spent last weekend uh, in Tacoma, Washington with our uh, oldest son and his wife. Um, that's why I wasn't here last weekend. And our daughter-in-law um, brought with her to dinner, as we shared dinner together one night, a little book called The Book of Questions. A book, little book filled with all kinds of questions just designed to, to start fun conversation. And it really was kind of fun. Questions like, who have been the most influential people in your life? And you kind of go around and you think about it and you answer the question. What book would you want everyone in the, re in the world to read other than the Bible? If your house were burning down, what one material possession would you run back in and try to save? Fun questions. What smell makes you feel most alive? That's a good one. How about cinnamon rolls and coffee in the morning? Fresh cut grass in the spring? What's your, what, what makes you feel alive? Made for fun conversation, uh, but we all know there are even more important questions we could ask. If you Google search, you know, most important philosophical questions of all time, you'll find things like, what is the meaning of life? Does God exist? Is there life after death? Will there be animals in heaven? I get asked that one about once a year. Or why do the Packers get all the good quarterbacks? You know, questions that we all care about. <laughs> Verse 17 and as he was setting out on his way, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this conversation was recorded in Mark's gospel, but also in Matthew and Luke as well. And in Matthew's account, we learn that this man was a young man. And in Luke's account, we learn he was a ruler, that is a person of high position in society. And at the end of the story, we find out he's also very wealthy. So in other words, this guy had everything. He was young. He had status, and he had wealth. He had it made. And yet, notice, Mark says he runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. I think this is very telling. This is a young man that has the world by the tail. Uh, he's got status and wealth. People usually run to him. People usually are asking him for favors. And yet, here he is, running up to Jesus and kneeling before him. There's a sense of urgency to this question. Uh, he's got everything, and yet he's missing something. He's got all there is in this world to desire, and yet there's something lacking in his life. I assume that most of us here this morning recognize the name Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady's arguably the most successful football player of all time, and probably one of the most famous people in the world today. He's won seven Super Bowl championships. He holds all kinds of NFL records. He's impossibly handsome. He's married to a supermodel. 
He's fabulously wealthy. By one estimate, he's worth $270 million, and his wife is worth $400 million. He once lived in a 22,000-square-foot house with eight bedrooms, nine bathrooms, seven fireplaces, and a six-car garage, and surrounded by a moat. I'm not making that up. You can look it up. He put it on the market a few years ago for $40 million. But in 2005, after his third Super Bowl championship, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And partway through that interview, Brady said, there are times when I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is, what, this is it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. <coughs> Excuse me, me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And the interviewer said, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. Indeed. This rich young man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a good question. It's the best question. In fact, I would argue it's the only question that really matters. When I stand in a cemetery with a grieving family around an open grave, nobody's worried about what they're going to have for lunch. Nobody's worried about Super Bowl rings. Nobody's worried about what kind of trees are planted in the cemetery. The question in everybody's mind is, is there life after death? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But the question the young man asks here includes a subtle assumption. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what good deed must I add to my resume? Or what religious thing can I do to please God? Maybe he's come to Jesus looking for three-step plan for more fulfillment in life. Or maybe he's looking for a little wisdom to add to his busy schedule. I think in many ways this young man is a very contemporary figure. I think there are millions and millions of people in our culture who are desperately wanting to add a little spirituality to their lives. I've had people tell me who are visiting church, you know, we thought we'd, uh, we'd try to get a little religion in our lives. But Jesus is not, we'll find out in the story, an addition to our busy lives. He is actually the definition of life itself. In many ways, I identify with this guy, asking, what can I do? I like to get things done. I've said here many times before that I, I'm a list maker. I, I make a to-do list every week. I usually do it Sunday night or Monday morning. Uh, how many of you are list makers? Anybody? Then you'll recognize, you'll speak my language here. So I have all these things uh, on my list uh, to do, including uh, things like write sermon, which involves at least five steps. I break it down into steps so I can cross them off. You know, when you cross them off, you get kind of credit for them, right? <laughs> my to-do list shapes my week, and in some ways shapes my life. It gives me a sense of accomplishment. So this young man has everything, and he asks a good and important question, and his question, however, is built on a little bit of a faulty assumption. A few months ago, um, my wife and I watched a few episodes of a TV comedy series called The Good Place. Anybody see any of that? It's a comedy series about life after death. The good place is what we would call heaven. The bad place is what we would call hell. And the whole premise of the show is that the way to the good place is basically a complicated point system. On the show, when someone does a good thing say, fixing a tricycle for a child, or donating blood regularly, or discovering the cure for a, a, a disease, they accumulate points. They get points for that. 
some divine scoreboard. And when if, if they do bad things, like failing to tip a food server or cutting off someone in traffic or committing genocide, points are subtracted. And at the end of earthly life, all those points are tabulated, and if you get enough points, you get to the good place. Now, we eventually decided it wasn't worth continuing to watch, uh, but the truth is, this is how most people, I'm convinced, this is how most people in our culture think about spiritual life. It's how most people in our culture think it works. Just do more good than bad, and you're in. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So as he often does, Jesus replies to a question with a question. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. This is also a good question. And I want us to see that Jesus is doing three things with this simple question. First, he's challenging this young man's whole idea of goodness. Second, he's challenging this young man's idea of his own goodness. And he's also revealing himself as the source of all goodness. He's revealing himself as God. A couple years ago, I was in uh, Starbucks, just right now from the church here, um, having coffee, doing a little bit of work, and I overheard a conversation at a little table next to me. You know, the tables are pretty close together in the coffee shop. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but I just overheard a conversation. There were two 20-something-year-old guys sitting there having coffee, and this is the snippet of the conversation I actually heard. One guy said to the other, I'm not sure there's an actual heaven, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there. And I wondered to myself, how, how could someone say that? I mean, if I could have slid my chair over and asked, you know, I just, I just heard you say this. I'm just wondering what your rationale is. I'm almost, I could almost guarantee he would say, well, because I'm a what? Pretty good person. Right. I've seen research that shows that in America today, more people believe they are going to heaven than believe there is a heaven. It's true. You can look up the research. And that's because most people in our culture simply think of themselves as pretty good people. And that's the standard. The problem with our idea of goodness is that we always skew goodness toward ourselves, don't we? We kind of always grade on a curve. We have a tendency to compare our own goodness with those who we regard as less good than ourselves. You know, I hardly ever compare myself to, say, Mother Teresa. You know, I compare myself to someone truly awful, like, you know, Aaron Rodgers or someone like that. And I'm, I'm just kidding. All you Packer fans out there, relax. Right? Relax. My brother tells a story of years ago driving his uh, six-year-old Honda Accord somewhere in town on his way to, uh, to his office, and he stopped at a stoplight, and he happened to notice the car stopped right next to him, and the next lane over was a car much older than his six-year-old Honda Accord. You know, paint was chipping, um, the, the cracked windshield, one of the fenders held on by duct tape, and he found himself thinking, hmm, that guy's not quite as successful as I am. Probably skipped school, probably a little bit lazy, you know. Drove ahead, next stoplight, the guy pulls up next to him in a brand-new Lexus. 
My brother said he looked over and went, materialist. <laughs> I love that story. Because that's how we pretty much think about our lives sometimes. We have a t- tendency to compare ourselves to others, and we regard ourselves as good. Jesus is confronting this idea, no, this guy's no, whole notion of goodness and badness. Now, just to be fair, this young man was undoubtedly a good guy. Notice when Jesus says, verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. <clears throat> Notice Jesus doesn't challenge him. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 time out, time out. No way you've kept all of those 100%. Not, Jesus doesn't say that. Now, I don't think this young man says he's, is saying he's been perfect. I think what he means is he knows, acknowledges, and seeks to obey God's law. That he's a good guy. But there's an interesting thing here, and we can miss this. The commandments Jesus mentions here, that this guy affirms that he has obeyed, are the last six of the Ten Commandments. The ones having to do with how we treat each other. Uh, And Jesus actually changes one of them, if you notice. It's very subtle. He changes do not covet, which is in the original Ten Commandments, to do not defraud, and we'll see why in just a moment. But Jesus doesn't mention that all of the first four commandments, which are how we honor and worship God. And we're going to find out that this is this man's greatest problem. He's a pretty good guy. He's a very good guy. But he's got a problem at the very center of his life. That leads us to the second thing we see in this passage, and I'm calling that a kingdom challenge. Kingdom challenge. When I was about 14 years old or so, I decided I, I wanted to be a, a, a good basketball player. Spent practice hours and hours on the little hoop at our house and went to camps, worked on my skills, practiced shooting, dribbling, all that stuff. Eventually made the varsity team as a sophomore. Uh, my senior year set all the scoring records of my school. Uh, my goal was to play in college. And my football coach at the time, a man by the name of Phil Gennaro, Coach Jay, one of the significant people in my life growing up, uh, called me into his office one day. We called him Coach Jay for short. Called me into his office, sat me down, and he said, so, you want to play ball in college? I said, yes, sir, I, I do. He said, son, you're going to be the best basketball player this school has ever had, but your feet are too slow to play in college. No one had ever said that to me before. I'd never given two thoughts about my feet. I worried about shooting the ball, passing the ball, dribbling the ball. And he went on to give me a whole bunch of drills I could do to improve my foot speed. Looking back on that, on that, that conversation, Coach Jay told me the truth. He told me there was something I lacked. And he did so because he cared. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I want to read that line again. I want you to hear it. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Mark says Jesus looked at him. The word he uses there means to observe carefully, to discern clearly, meaning that Jesus did more than just see this young man. It means he knew him. He saw his heart. He saw his life. He saw everything about him. And this is the theme we'll see over and over again in the Gospels, that Jesus 
sees people. He looks intently at people. And I think he looks intently at us as well. And then he says Jesus loved him. The word here is from the great word agape. It means to earnestly desire the best for someone. And seeing this young man and loving this young man, Jesus says, you lack one thing. Now, why would Jesus say this? You know, in our culture today, it's, um, love isn't defined that way. In our culture today, love is you have to agree with someone about everything they want to do. That's not how Jesus loved, because he wanted the best. He said, you lack one thing. Because he knows something about this young man. He knows this man has a terrible problem. His problem isn't leprosy, or a withered hand, or blindness, or paralysis, all physical ailments Jesus has healed already in the Gospel of Mark. His problem is much deeper than that. A hidden and destructive idol that dominates his heart and threatens his soul. Jesus knows that this man's life, his identity, is tied to his wealth and his status. And he knows that this idol will eventually destroy this young man. It will demand his very soul. In short, Jesus knows this is a good man. He knows he has tried his best to keep the commandments, but he's living in violation of the very first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Which is why Jesus doesn't ask that one in the original question. It's why he changes do not covet to do, do not defraud, the business term because he knows the man covets, and he knows he has another God. Now, I think to me this is one of the saddest little stories in the entire Bible. This young man comes to Jesus because he's looking for something that's missing in his life. He runs to him, and he kneels before him. He comes to the right person in the right way with the right question, and when Jesus tells him and invites him to follow, to surrender his heart, to surrender his identity, we read, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He turned and walked away. Grieving, the word means. Why? Because Jesus had called him to surrender the very core of his identity. It's as if Jesus reached into this man's heart, took a hold of what he, how he had always thought of himself, what he depended on for security, what he depended on for salvation, what he depended on, and he wanted to pull it out and replace it. And the man said, no, I'm keeping hold of that. And he walked away. When the choice came to following Jesus, or clinging to his own sense of self-identity, he chose poorly. And that leads us to the third point today, the kingdom of the impossible. The kingdom of the impossible. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. A little background here. In ancient Jewish culture, 
Uh, wealth was often understood to be a sign of God's favor and blessing, where poverty and a disease were seen to be a sign of God's displeasure, uh, like a punishment for sin. So when Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, and then gives this exaggerated and actually humorous example of a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle, no wonder the disciples are so surprised. No wonder they're exceedingly astonished. This is a good guy. This is a religious guy. He's a rich guy. Uh, he's blessed by God, and he's not good enough? Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. Not only is he not good enough, it's impossible for him to ever be good enough on his own merit. Now, Jesus is not saying that wealth is evil. He's not. He's not saying that it's sinful to be rich. He's not. He's not saying that we all need to give our money away. He's not. What he is saying is that wealth is not the measure of God's blessing. What he is saying is that wealth can be an obstacle to our understanding and entering the eternal kingdom of God. He is saying that wealth, like many other things in our world, can become an idol in our lives, an idol which holds our hearts captive, an idol that becomes what we worship and serve, an idol that becomes that in which we find identity. And for Jesus, that's the whole point. You must be born again. You must deny yourself. You must pick up your cross, be defined by me, by my cross. The disciples then ask another great question. They say, then who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God for, God, for all things are possible with God. Now what's Jesus saying here? Well, in context, he's saying that the rich young man is not and cannot be good enough or cannot do enough good things to achieve eternal life on his own. Jesus is saying that only God is good, therefore only God can grant the gift of eternal life. And the good news is, that that gift can only be received by surrendering the idols of our hearts and by surrendering ourselves to following Jesus. Jesus makes the impossible possible. He makes his kingdom available to everyone, from the fisherman to the tax collector, the Jew, the Roman, the religious, the irreligious, the poor, the rich, the super rich, the person you think would never darken the door of a church because he offers the same call and the same grace, and the same challenge to everyone. Follow me, he says. Many years ago, when I was still in college, I had lunch with a man who was some 25 years older than myself. At the time, he had gone to the same college that I was attending, and he was at my father's church in Florida, so uh, he invited me to lunch. So over lunch, um, we just had a conversation a bit about his life, and he told me that he had studied law, uh, graduated at the top of his class and began building his career. Along the way, he got married, had, I think, five children. Uh, but most of his time and energy went to building his practice. He was extremely successful at what he did and was successful by almost every worldly measure. But behind the scenes, there were struggles. His family uh, began to fall apart. His marriage was crumbling. His wife developed an addiction that he knew nothing about. His children became rebellious and angry. And eventually, there was a contentious divorce, and he lost almost everything he cared about. 
Now, his story got better over time. He returned to his faith, surrendered his heart and life to Christ, and while his divorce was final, he began to rebuild his relationship with his children. I still remember how he summarized that portion of his life to me that day over lunch. He said, Brian, I just lived at a higher and higher level of poverty, he said. I just lived at a higher and higher level of poverty. I think that's what Jesus saw in this young man. And it could be what he sees in us today. Now, it's easy for us to say to ourselves, you know, I'm not like that, rich young, that, that young man in the story. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not rich. And, of course, that's comparative, right? I'm not young. Can I get an amen on that? I'm not young. I don't have any idols. Well, let's think about that for a moment. If Jesus were to walk through uh, your life, your heart, and ask you to give him something, is there anything that he could ask for that you would refuse to give him, that you would want to hold on to? Your money, your health, your career, your children, your grandchildren. And when you find that which you would not want to surrender, that which you could not bear to give to him, you found what could be your idol. For this young man, it was his wealth. For you, for me. Jesus sees us, the story says. He sees us, he sees into our hearts, he knows all about our idols, and yet he loves us. He calls us to lay them down and follow him, not because he wants us to have less, that's not the point of the story. It's because he wants us to have more. He wants to give us more than we already have. He wants to set us free from those idols that hold us captive. And he wants to give us the gift of life, new life, his life, eternal life. Would you bow with me as we close? Lord, we thank you today for your word. This is an ancient story, yet so contemporary. Our world offers so many things on which to build our identity, on which to set our hopes. And just like the rich young man in this story, we're so tempted to cling to superficial things, to temporary things. We're tempted to define ourselves by lesser things. But you see us, and you love us, and you offer us eternal things. Teach us to run to you, to kneel before you over and over and to receive the gift that only you can give. It's in your name, in Jesus' name, that we pray.